Hello, everyone. Welcome to Word Journeys. Before we get to the show, I have a few quick announcements. First, we decided to wrap up and call everything we've done so far Season 1. You'll hear this episode, but then we'll take a break for a few months for research, recording, and relaxation before we're back again with more episodes in Season 2. I want to thank all of the listeners, old and new, for tuning in every month. It really means a lot, and I hope you've enjoyed it. In the meantime, you can keep up with the show by following us on Twitter at WordJourneysPod. If you've been enjoying the show, I ask that you consider contributing in some way. Any little bit helps, whether it's telling your friends about us or writing a good review on iTunes so that other potential fans can more easily find out about it. I've also started a Patreon page, which can be found in the show notes through our website at www.wordjourneyspodcast.com or directly at www.patreon.com backslash wordjourneyspodcast. This is a site for financial contributions big and small, and contributions of certain amount can get you certain perks. By contributing a little bit, you can get a personal shout-out on the show, and there are other perks, too, worth checking out. Here's one that I think many of you will be excited about, if you like those word puzzles that I've been giving out at the end of the episodes. For a $25 contribution, I'll send you a set of 20 etymological questions, like the word puzzles. You can play them by yourself, or you could try to solve them with your friends, and I'll throw in a few hints for each of them, which you don't get on the show. And there's tons of cool information that's embedded in the questions and the answers. All of the contributions will go directly towards hosting and website fees. And then, after that, equipment and marketing. Speaking of the word puzzles, I got a number of good responses from the last episode. As a reminder, the question was about an English word that can refer to language or speech that is unintelligible or difficult for outsiders to understand. It originally referred to the chattering of birds, but not so much anymore, and it comes from an onomatopoeia of random noise, though that might not be immediately apparent. One of the answers is the word jargon, submitted by Curtis in Philadelphia. Jargon originally referred to the inarticulate utterance of birds, and appeared in English in the late 14th century. It probably came from a word that sounded something like gargon, which was supposed to mimic a nonsense sound. Another answer is the word gobbledygook, submitted by Hendricks in Nottingham, England. This is a recent coinage, first used in 1944, and it was probably coined in imitation of a turkey's gobble. It was first attested in a usage by a U.S. representative from Texas named Maury Maverick. In a strange etymological connection, Maury Maverick was the grandson of Samuel Maverick, who was the original Maverick. Maverick was an eponym. Samuel didn't brand his cattle, so he got the reputation of an unorthodox person, and his name lives on in that word. This week's episode is on Jewish onomastics, and it was recorded in studio with a friend of mine, Reuben Post. You'll notice the style is different from our usual episodes, and it's a lot longer, but it's full of interesting information, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Word Journeys, a podcast about etymology and the surprising stories of English words. This is a special episode because it's our first to feature a guest. Today I'm joined by Behold, a son who lives by the stick, and I, as always, am the son of Simon who lives in the valley. 
No, those aren't our real names, uh, obviously. Uh, but that's what our names mean etymologically. And it felt appropriate to start that way because this is the first episode in what I hope will be an occasional series on onomastics, which is the study of proper names. And today, in particular, we'll be talking about personal and family names. My guest is Ruben Post, a friend of mine and an etymology and onomastics enthusiast. Uh, Ruben, you want to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about what you do and your interest in onomastics? Sure, sure. Um, so uh, I'm a PhD student at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, and I focus on ancient Greek history. Um, and I'm interested in, in the Hellenistic period, which is the period sort of after Alexander the Great's conquest, but before the Roman conquest of Greece. And what's interesting about this period is that it's when you have uh, the spread of Greek culture over a huge part of the ancient world from uh, really, you know, Spain in the West all the way through to Pakistan and Central Asia in the East. And in this period, you have an interesting mixture of different cultures. So uh, as we'll talk about today, for instance, you have Jews who take on Greek names, who start uh, worshiping in Greek ways while still maintaining their own Jewish identity. And you find this all throughout the old world. So I think it's, it's uh, particularly interesting to talk about names and naming because it can tell us so much about individuals and about cultural contact and people's hopes and fears and all kinds of different elements of ancient society. Right. That's awesome. And I like names because they amuse me sometimes if they're funny. <laughs> so. That too, of course. Right. Yeah. Um, so maybe the first thing we should do is just um, give the etymology of onomastics. It's a word we don't really see sure. every day. Um, and it's, it's this, it comes from the same root as uh, onomatopoeia from our last episode. So really the, the key root word is, is the Greek word onoma, which means name. And um, lots of words you probably know uh, come from this. So uh, antonym, synonym, eponym, pseudonym. All of these nim words uh, come from onoma. All good words. Um, yeah. The name Jerome, too. Oh. Um, yeah. It used to be Hieronymus. Right. So right. sacred name and Hieronymus over time became Jerome. Oh, so, yeah. And a name derivative. Um, okay. So there are a number of different topics and ways that you can go with the subject, like names. And cultures around the world have different and interesting naming practices. And maybe in future episodes, we can focus in on some others. Um, but our topic today is specifically Jewish onomastics and Jewish surnames. And uh, a few reasons, in addition to what Ruben said, why I think this is a good starting point um, into any exploration of naming in general. Um, first, the practices of Jewish naming are pretty similar uh, to naming practices around other cultures. Um, and generally, but because of the Jewish diaspora, we get to see it played out over many different geographical areas and different time periods. Um, second, there's many Jewish surnames that came about because of forced adoption. So in many instances, names are sort of created at specific historical moments in response to specific political and historical factors. And we'll get into many of those. Uh, and then finally, um, these names are sort of adopted and changed over time. And we'll get to see which factors are prioritized. Um, is the sound or is the meaning more important? And that's interesting to me. And you know, if you're a fan of translations or calcs between different languages, um, we think that you'll really enjoy this one. So now I'm going to turn it over to Ruben, who's going to give us uh, a very good, broad historical introduction and talk about some ancient naming practices. Sure. So uh, when you talk about Jewish naming practices, you really have to break things up historically into four broad periods. So you're talking about, of course, the biblical period, which really spans uh, from the 13th B century BC until around the 4th century BC. Um, and this 
begins with the establishment of the first Jewish states um, and ends with uh, the conquest of Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great conquers much of the Middle East um, and beyond and incorporates this into the Greek world. And that leads to transition into what we could call the Hellenistic and Roman period. So the Hellenistic period is the period when Greek culture spreads over a much broader area than just Greece. And in this period, uh, many different non-Greek peoples, including the Jews, were integrated into Greek society. Uh, and of course, after the Romans conquer um, the Greek states, then the Jews are incorporated into the Roman Empire. And this period really ends in around the mid-6th century AD with the Islamic conquest of much of the Mediterranean and North Africa and parts of Europe. Uh, and that uh, begins a new period, which is what we call so the diaspora period, um, when, which is, is really mainly the medieval period, when um, you have uh, Jewish communities being really established throughout much of Europe, Central Europe, Northern Europe, Western Europe, Eastern Europe. Um, and uh, this ends basically in the 19th century, the late 19th century, with the rise of Zionism, when you have a new movement to try and uh, establish uh, a new Jewish state in uh, what, what is now Israel. Uh, and this led to a shift again in naming practices when people went back to kind of the, the Hebrew roots, uh, biblical roots of, uh, of Jewish names. So these are the four broad periods, and I'll be going through uh, the first few, and then I think we'll talk more a little bit about a few specific episodes in, in later uh, Jewish naming history. So if you start, of course, in Judaism, you always have to go back to the Bible, uh, the beginning of it all. And in the biblical period, and it's a very, it's a long period. Again, it's from about the 13th century BC until about the 4th century BC. Um, really, you have three types of names that are assigned to different figures. Uh, and these are all Hebrew names. So these were names that are, are derived from Hebrew and that would have been intelligible to ancient Jews who spoke Hebrew. Uh, so uh, the first and largest group uh, are, are names that we call theophoric names. And so theophoric names are really just names that include some kind of divine element in them. And we find these across all different kinds of cultures. Uh, and in uh, ancient Judaism, they really took the form of either including uh, the word El or some variant of the word Yahweh or Yahu, Yahu, uh, that sort of thing. And these names are almost like mini sentences that include uh, some uh, act of God, usually. Mm. Uh, and so... Uh, the names that included El uh, actually come from uh, Canaanite. So the Canaanites uh, term the king of the gods El. And so we have names like Eliezer, which means God helps, or Israel itself. Mm -hmm. The name Israel means God persists. So these are usually older names, uh, and they are kind of held over in Jewish culture uh, once uh, the Canaanites are integrated broadly into uh, the Jewish states. Uh and then we have names that include Yahweh or some variant of that. So examples include like Yehonathan or Nathan Yehu, uh, which means given by God or gift of God, or names like Zachariah, which means God has remembered. Mm -hmm. So these are very common names, and you can probably name many of them yourselves uh, that you know of from the Bible. We also, in this period, find uh, a slight variation on this, which is... Uh, Theophoric names that have basically been shortened and have actually lost the Theo in them. They, they lost the God from the name. So we, we sometimes find these, these seem to be sort of like nicknames that eventually catch on and become more formal names. 
So an example is Paltiel, not really a common uh, Jewish name today, but uh, Paltiel appears in the Bible and he is called Palti. Uh, and so Paltiel means deliverance of God, but Palti uh, eventually just becomes a formal name in and of itself. So we find some of these names also, these shortened theophoric names. And the third category of names are basically just secular names. Uh, so uh, these are oftentimes derived from nature, but they, they can be derived from all kinds of different um, uh, all kinds of different subjects. So examples include like Devora, which means bee, or Alon, means oak. These also tend to be less common today, uh, but uh, they were still quite popular in uh, the biblical period. Um, but not all names that are assigned to famous biblical figures are actually Hebrew in origin. So uh, one of the most famous uh, biblical figures is, of course, Moses. Mm -hmm. um, but the name Moses actually isn't Hebrew. It comes from Egyptian. Uh, so this is probably a shortened version of an Egyptian theophoric name. And the, the, the name itself comes from the Egyptian verb that means to be born. And so, uh, for instance, in Egyptian names, you find it like in Tutmosis, the name of a, a, a several pharaohs. This means Thoth is born. Or Ramses. So Ramses itself means Ra gave birth to him. So uh, Moses, the name Moses, is directly related to these. And of course, uh, this makes sense considering the myth of Exodus, of, of fleeing from Egypt. So uh, we, we really find that the majority of uh, biblical names are Hebrew. They would have made sense to Hebrew speakers, but there are some names that are non-Jewish or non-Hebrew in origin as well. Uh, and in this period, basically, uh, people were identified by their given name. But we do also find that uh, to distinguish between individuals with similar names, uh, people use what are called patronymics. So they used uh, the names of their fathers to identify themselves. So we'll see, for instance, that Palti is called Palti ben Rafi, or you have Yehoshua ben Nun. So Palti, son of Rafi, or Yehoshua, son of Nun. Uh, and this is a very common way to distinguish between individuals in a lot of uh, pre-modern societies. And many of the surnames you'll see today have some sort of patronymic in them. So anything that ends in son, like Johnson, for instance, son of John, it's a patronymic, or right. O in front of Irish names. Um, so it's a very common phenomenon, right? Exactly, yeah. So And it, they, these tend to sort of become fossilized over time so that you can still recognize them today at some point. Philipson was no longer just the son of Philip, mm -hmm. but it just became a family name. Right. And you see some, later on, you see this, something quite similar um, in Jewish naming as well. Um, but in this, in this time period, we really don't have anything like family names. There's mm -hmm. nothing that's like a persistent last name. Uh, and sometimes we also see that individuals are identified in other ways. Uh, and so sometimes uh, we will uh, distinguish or sources will distinguish between individuals based on other kin relationships. So somebody will be identified as the son-in-law or the grandson or the father-in-law of somebody else. But oftentimes people will be distinguished from others of the same name based on where they're from. And two famous examples of this are actually not from the Old Testament, but from the New Testament. Uh, and so these are uh, Judas Iscariot and Mary Magdalene, these two very famous biblical figures. So uh, Judas Iscariot was actually Yehuda Ish Kriot, uh, Judas the man of Kriot. So Kriot was a place name, 
And Mary Magdalene was Miriam Magdala. So Mary, the woman of Magdala. Uh, so sometimes we do hear that figures are identified this way. And sometimes you'll hear also of so-and-so the Babylonian or so-and-so the Persian or whatever. Uh, so this was sometimes a popular way to distinguish as well between uh, different individuals. So that's basically, you know, that those names form the foundation of a lot of Jewish onomastics throughout the entirety of, of Jewish history. Uh, they remain popular, as you'd imagine, um, through the uh, later periods of antiquity and through the medieval period as well. And then when you move on to the 4th century BC, all the way up until the 6th century AD, when we get that next period, sort of the, the Greco-Roman period of Jewish history, um, we have Alexander the Great's conquest uh, in the later 4th century BC of the Holy Land, uh, the integration of the Jews now into a much broader uh, empire that included significant portions of the European world. Um, we find that Jewish communities begin to move west. So earlier on, we had Jewish communities that had moved eastwards into Mesopotamia, into Persia, but now they begin to move west into the Mediterranean and the whole sort of world of, of the Mediterranean and Europe uh, opens up to these Jewish communities. Um, and many Jews begin to uh, speak Greek, take on Greek names, uh, and generally to engage in Greek cultural practices. Uh, and then once uh, the Romans conquer the Holy Land, in turn in the first century BC, then uh, the Jews are integrated into an even broader European uh, empire, of course, the Roman Empire, which then spread to regions like modern Germany, uh, the Iberian Peninsula, uh, the Balkans, all these different regions, and Jewish communities then became established in those regions as well, um, uh, as soon, usually after Roman provinces were established in these, these parts of Europe. And at this, in this period, we have an interesting development because many Jews uh, don't actually seem to be speaking Hebrew mm -hmm. once uh, you have these diaspora communities established. They're usually speaking the local language. They might learn Hebrew to be able to read the Bible, but they're probably not speaking it in everyday life. And at the same time, as you would imagine, these communities become increasingly assimilated into the local cultures, cultures that they settle among. Um, and so, of course, you would imagine that when they adopt names, they tend to adopt many of the popular Greek or Roman names if they're living in Greek or Latin speaking uh, communities. Uh, and so usually they are just when Jews adopt these non-Jewish names in this period, they are just very popular common or generic names. But sometimes they also uh, adopt calques of uh, Hebrew names that have been translated into Greek or Latin. So uh, an interesting example of this is that in Greek, a popular name was Theodorus, uh, which means a God's gift. Mm -hmm. So from Theos, God, and Doron, meaning gift. Um, and many of the names, as we've already heard in Hebrew, uh, many biblical names, also meant gift of God or some variant like that. But some of the most popular uh, Hebrew names uh, include the gift part, the gift element first, and the name of God second. So for instance, Netanyel means uh, gift of God. And this order of elements was less common in Greek. So uh, Theodorus has the gift, or sorry, the God element first, not second. But once uh, Jews began adopting Greek names. For instance, we find that Dorotheos, 
which is the Greek version of that name with the elements inverted, becomes much more popular. Uh, so uh, they are taking on Greek names, but maybe changing the elements to suit them more to traditional Jewish naming practices. Mm. And so another example of this uh, is the Greek name Theophilos, which means uh, beloved of God. And this is a, a calque also of the, the Hebrew name uh, Yedidia, which means the same thing, like friend of God, beloved mm-hmm. of God. So these names become quite popular because they make sense clearly to uh, Jewish uh, populations who are looking for names that are familiar or fit with their normal naming practices. So, and in Latin as well, once we get into the, the Roman period, uh, we have a similar process occurring. So uh, a popular name, uh, a Hebrew name was Zadok, which means just. Mm-hmm. Um, and this becomes Justus or justice in the Roman Empire. So, uh, you know, people are doing the same sort of thing once they settle in Latin speaking parts of Europe mm-hmm. as well. Um, but sometimes the Greek or Latin name that these individuals adopted uh, wasn't semantically similar to a Hebrew name, but was actually just phonetically similar. And a famous example of this is Saul. So Saul famously adopts the name Paul, or in English, Paul. So his Hebrew name was Shaul, which means prayed for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he adopts the Latin name Paulus um, because it seems to have sounded sort of similar. The, mm-hmm. the vowel sounds are kind of similar. Uh, and so sometimes we see this as well, that it just sort of sounds like an old name they had or a familiar name. And so they just pick that name because it's easy enough to re- pronounce or remember or whatever. Interesting. And we'll see this phenomenon a little bit later as well. Right. But, um, right. Continues yeah. over time. Right. It's pretty, it seems to be pretty popular with cultural context. Right. You just sort of choose something that sounds similar. Um, and uh, but in this period again we don't really see family names emerging yet so we still just have given names people will be identified with patronymics as well um and but the only persistent names that we sort of see secondary names or or uh names that distinguish between individuals of the same given name are members of usually the priestly class mm-hmm. or kings of royal houses um and it's because it makes sense because you know these positions were inherited so you would be um, a member of a priestly clan, and you would include that in your formal name uh, so that you could identify yourself as such. Mm-hmm. So after the fall of the Roman Empire, surnames sort of fell out of fashion for a while, and we don't really see them emerging again until you know, 10th, 11th century, um, usually adopted in certain areas based on what other groups were living there. Um, at the same time, this is the diaspora period. Jewish communities were spread out. Um, one big area where Jews lived uh, was the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal. Um, Jews who lived here were known as Sephardic Jews um, after a place name that occurs in the Bible that was later identified as Spain and Portugal. Um, but there's a big Jewish community there, and they start adopting surnames um, a little bit earlier, and it, it's because you know, the the locals did, and I think the Arabs nearby did as well. Um, so 12th, 13th century, you start to see um, Jews having surnames. But later on in the 13th and 14th and 15th centuries, there began to be more open hostility for Jews, um, pogroms and attacks against them. And by the late 15th century, um, in the Alhambra Decree, uh, Spain basically forced all the Jews to leave, um, either to convert 
or to leave or to die. Um, and right. <laughs> yeah. Tough choice. Right. Um, and in this period, you see uh, lots of Jews adopting surnames, mostly out of um, necessity to to preserve community identities um, in periods of distress. And oftentimes you see it from place names. So, for instance, um, Toledano, you know, from Toledo. Um, they might adopt that surname and move to Portugal. So there are Sephardic Jews living in the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal. And there's also another big group of Jews known as the Ashkenazi Jews. And I know, Ruben, you have some info on their personal naming practices. Yeah. Uh, so Ashkenazi uh, Jews were the Jews who were living throughout much of Central and Eastern Europe. Majority of them spoke Yiddish, of course, which is sort of a, a mixture of uh, German and Hebrew. Um, and... Unlike in uh, Italy and the Iberian Peninsula and some other parts of the Mediterranean, uh, most Ashkenazi Jewish communities were quite rural. They were smaller communities, um, and they were quite separate most of the time from surrounding societies. So they sort of preserved their own cultural practices uh, apart from the more urbanized uh, groups around them most of the time. And as a result, they uh, didn't really uh, adopt family names until they were forced to. So in the case of Ashkenazi Jews uh, and their given names, we find that uh, biblical Hebrew names were really favored, um, and especially the names of prominent figures in the Bible. Uh, and when non-Jewish names were uh, given to uh, Ashkenazi individuals, they were usually adapted to kind of Yiddish pronunciation uh, to make them sound more Jewish as well. And uh, we find a practice that emerges in this time uh, among Ashkenazi Jews, which is that people are named with a Hebrew name called a Shem HaKodesh, a name for religious purposes. Uh, and also we're given then a foreign or Gentile name, uh, a non-Hebrew name, which is called a kinwi, uh, which is a name that was used for practical everyday purposes. And the, uh, the Shem HaKodesh, the religious name, was really mainly used for uh, registering brises or uh, like circumcisions or marriages or that sort of thing. Whereas in everyday life, they tended to use uh, their Gentile names quite a bit more. Mm. And what we find also amongst Ashkenazi Jews is that because... Uh, they tended to choose from a pretty limited range of biblical given names. Uh, and because they practice what we call patronymy and paponymy, uh, this is the, <laughs> the practice of naming children after their parents or after their grandparents. Mm -hmm. um, we find that oftentimes many individuals within uh, the same community or even within the same family would bear the same names. And so obviously this leads to problems of identification. Mm -hmm. uh, and so people would often adopt nicknames uh, or, or by names that would become uh, quite prevalent alongside their, their biblical given names. And we also find in medieval Ashkenazi communities a couple of unusual naming practices. Um, one of them was that if a person was uh, deathly ill, they would uh, be given a new name. And the idea was that if they were given a new name, they would confuse the angel of death, who was apparently <laughs> supposed to call out the person's name when they died. So the idea was if the angel of death didn't know their name, then they couldn't die. Uh, so this is kind of like a superstitious practice. Mm. Uh, and one of these names that was given to people uh, when they were ill, if they survived, um, was called Chaim. So life. 
uh, which is an appropriate name, as you can imagine, if you go on to survive uh, a disease or something like that. Um, and another practice is that in Ashkenazi families where several children had died uh, and another child was born, that other child would be named Alter, meaning older uh, in Yiddish. And again, the idea was that the angel of death wouldn't know the child's name. And so that child could not die or this would prevent them from dying. And then the idea is when the child actually reached marriageable age, they would then adopt a new name, usually a biblical name. Hmm. Uh, and they could then formally be sort of integrated into the community. And maybe there's, you know, less chance of them being taken by the angel of death. Right. So, yeah, you have a few of these practices. They're not very common, but we do find them um, in uh, the sources that we have available. In some places, Jews adopted surnames earlier on. So, for instance, Sephardic Jews living in the Iberian Peninsula in Spain and Portugal often adopted surnames earlier just because the people around them did. And, and sometimes it was in response to certain political factors or forced exile. Um, on the other hand, among Ashkenazi Jews, um, many uh, lived until the 18th, 19th centuries without having surnames, um, as Ruben said, because um, oftentimes they lived in isolation and away from uh, communities. Um, and especially in areas where there wasn't as much urbanization, there were as many people around, it was sort of easier to go around with, with a common name and without being confused. Now, in some cases, there are examples of Jews living in Prussia or Germany or Italy, um, adopting surnames for various reasons. One good example of this are surnames that came about in the Frankfurt ghetto, the Judengasse, the Jews alleyway or street of the Jews, um, where many surnames were adopted because it, the area kept getting bigger and, and there were lots of people presumably with the same personal name. Um, and I guess one interesting way of how they were adopted is that um, they were sort of location-based, um, but oftentimes they took their name from um, certain shop signs. So for instance, uh, there would be lots of shops. They would have sort of signs with animals or flowers or colors on them. And oftentimes these sort of came and became incorporated into, into people's names. Um, one, I guess, famous instance of this is the, the Rothschild family, a famous, uh, Jewish family of the, of the middle ages. Um, Roth, it's Rothschild is really Rothschild, uh, red shield. And it's because, um, one of them lived in a house with a, with a sign that was a red shield. And apparently it was green not long before it was red. And so a, a fresh coat of paint this was the sole determinant. Um, and then it's funny when they stick and when they don't. So for instance, um, I think it was Meyer Rothschild, um, at one point moved from his house to a different location, which is behind the saucepan. But he kept the Rothschild name. At that point, that was his name, and, and he was no longer tied to uh, to his specific location. And there were others that came out of Frankfurt, so um, Schwarzschild, uh, Black Shield. Um, many were animal names, so there was Adler, which meant eagle, or a Strauss, which meant ostrich, or Gans, which meant goose. And so oftentimes these names were created um, really from the signs in this one area of town. Now, that's not to say... not and this is a general rule, is that doesn't mean that if your name is Adler, that it is specifically from this one location and this one derivation, um, because they really sort of branch out in many different ways. Um, but that is one way that, that names were adopted. 
sometimes in this period also, uh, Jews would take surnames based on their occupation. So Spielmann, for instance, a musician, or if you were a cobbler, you might have the name Schuster uh, appended um, to your name. Um, there's one that's sort of interesting that came into English, uh, which is the name Rappaport. 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 <laughs> Um, but maybe it comes from the phrase Rafa de Porto. So Porto being an Italian city um, near Verona. And so, and Rafa was physician. So the physician of, of Porto um, became a surname. Um, some people think it might also be Rab, Rabbi, Rabbi, excuse me. Um, so the Rabbi of Porto um, over time sort of became condensed into Rappaport. And funnily enough, I guess the first Rappaport went by that name, but his brother in an attempt to distinguish himself, was known as Port Rappa. <laughs> but that one didn't um, really take hold, I don't think. It's too bad. So this is all to say that during this period, you know, from 1000 to 1800, um, surnames weren't very common, but they would occur sometimes, especially in areas of, of high uh, concentration of Jews in cities like Prague or Frankfurt. As we get into the late 18th century, uh, it's a period where there are a few formal decrees that require Jews to take on surnames, and these surnames are very prevalent today. So it's an important historical moment, and for that, I'm going to turn you back over to Ruben. Right. So um, a lot of this really focuses on the Austrian Empire. Um, and the Austrian Empire in 1787 passed a decree that required all of its citizens to adopt a family name. And this really was targeted, especially at the Jewish population. Uh, and in order to put this into context, I just want to talk briefly about some of the background to this uh, decree. So in 1772, the Austrian Empire expanded uh, and incorporated uh, parts of modern Poland that included large numbers of Jews. Uh, and so in this period, the Jewish population of the Austrian Empire reached its peak. And at the same, around the same time, in 1776, the Austrian Empire began to formalize naming uh, registries and forbid arbitrary name changes. So something we see in the medieval period is that when individuals might move from one community to another, for instance, they would change their, their name or their, uh, their surname to match um, where they were living. So these were not really permanent names that were not officially registered very well. Uh, so you could just change them whenever you wanted to. So in 1776, the Austrians forbid this practice. And then in 1780, the new Holy Roman Emperor, uh, the leader of the Austrian Empire, Joseph II, came to power, uh, and he set out to reform the Austrian Empire. So he wanted to do away with the remnants of uh, medieval administration in the empire, and he really wanted to modernize it. He wanted to bring it into the Enlightenment, uh, and he wanted to enact some of the ideals of that period as well. And one of his goals was to assimilate many uh, of his subject populations into broader society. Uh, and so Jews in particular were targeted for assimilation in this period. So this brought some benefits to Jewish populations because, for instance, now for the first time they were allowed to engage in agriculture and wholesale commerce, which they were barred from before. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were allowed to serve in the army, which allowed them opportunities for uh, social advancement. Uh, they were also no longer forced to wear distinctive garb or beards. 
So uh, before uh, they were uh, forcibly separated from everybody else in Austrian society, now they were allowed to assimilate more easily. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, they were now forbidden from communicating formally uh, using Hebrew or Yiddish. Uh, so now they had to communicate uh, exclusively in German when they were writing to each other. Mm. So uh, there were some benefits, some disadvantages. And in 1787, July 1787, uh, the Austrian Empire officially decreed that all subjects had to have a formal family name. And the main uh, population that was targeted in this case were Jews because they were the largest group that tended not to have surnames. And ironically, despite the fact that Ashkenazi Jews uh, as a whole ended up adopting surnames quite a bit later than Sephardic Jews, um, they actually now were the first Jewish population in the world that were required to have a family name. Mm. So earlier Jewish populations, Sephardic Jews, for instance, adopted family names because it was sort of the cultural practice. Um, But in this case now, they were, everybody had to have a family name. And it was specified in this decree that these family names had to be German or Germanicized. Mm. So they had to be comprised of German elements. You weren't allowed to take a Hebrew or a biblical uh, family name, for instance. And what's really interesting is that the oldest Yiddish term for family name is actually Deutscher Namen, which literally means German name. So you can see in this term that this was seen as a foreign imposition, that they weren't sort of voluntarily choosing to, uh, to adopt family names, but they felt that this was imposed on them. So in, uh, later on in that same year, also in November 1787, despite the fact that uh, their family names, Jews' family names were required to be German or Germanicized, uh, it was also decreed that Jews were only allowed to have Jewish-sounding given names. So you have an interesting (laughs) mixture there. Uh, And they actually published, the the Austrian government published a list of uh, of names that could be given to Jews. So uh, these are basically just biblical classic Hebrew names. Uh, So you have an interesting mixture in this period. So were other, did Germans at that time tend to have biblical names? Like, I guess, was this an example of, they wanted the Jews to assimilate via the last name, but still seem distinctive because of the first name. Um, I think that uh, biblical names were, um, I, th- I think, not uncommon in this period. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there were certain biblical names that were seen as typically Jewish gotcha. as well. So certain figures from the Old Testament tended to be favored mm-hmm. by Ashkenazi Jews, uh, and their names were not as commonly given to non uh, Jewish inhabitants of the Austrian Empire, German speakers in this period. And so in the wake of this decree of 1787, we also find that other neighboring states like Prussia, and then France, and eventually the Russian Empire go on to issue similar decrees requiring all of their subjects to adopt family names. Uh, and this is clearly done for administrative purposes. It allowed them to sort of modernize the administration of their empires. So that by the early 18th century, uh, Jews throughout Europe were required to have family names for the most part. And then for Jews living in Western Europe, um, the Napoleonic Law Code around 1808 and later, which applied to any territory that was controlled by Napoleon during the Napoleonic period, um, that civil code also required the adoption of surnames. 
So between 1787 and 1815, say, almost everyone in, in Europe was forced to use a surname. Right, right. And so this leads to the question of, you know, how exactly did this work? If you have thousands or tens of thousands of people who all of a sudden need to register with family names, um, you needed to send out officials into these communities to register formally all of these individuals. Um, and what we see in some of our sources is that there's clearly uh, resistance amongst many uh, Jewish communities to this measure. So, of course, um, this name decree accompanied many other uh, changes to Jewish life within uh, the Austrian Empire, and some individuals felt that they were being stripped of their identity. Uh, so resistance um, arises, it seems, for this reason. And so it seems also that um, officials took this as an opportunity to extort money from many Jewish communities. So they would sell uh, nicer names or fancier names um, for a certain price. Uh, so we have names, of course, that are associated with nature or uh, botany or gems like Rosenthal, Rose Valley, uh, Edelstein, uh, Gemstone or Diamant, Diamond. Of course, mm -hmm. these all sound very noble. Mm -hmm. um, but from what we hear in sources is that it might be expensive to actually purchase these names when mm -hmm. you were registering. Uh, if you were not able to pay or if you uh, refuse to accept a name, you might be given a name or assigned a name by officials. And many of these are insulting or are degrading. So we hear about, for instance, Affenkraut, monkey weed, uh, Ochsenschwanz, ox, oxtail, uh, Taschengreifer, pocket grasper, uh, Galgenstrick, gallows rope. Uh, some other examples include Sing Mir Was, uh, Sing Me Something, and Kissemich, Kiss Me, uh, and my favorite, uh, Stinker, which means the same thing in German as it does in English. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> in many cases, clearly, um, these names were not positive, were not mm -hmm. viewed positively, uh, and there's a reason why most of them don't survive uh, today as Jewish last names. Uh, because as soon as these individuals who were assigned these names got the opportunity, they changed them. Uh, but we do know from contemporary and slightly later sources that um, these names uh, were uh, prevalent in Jewish communities in Central and, and Eastern uh, Europe. There was a joke that I encountered a few times in doing research for this, and it was that someone came home with a new name, which was Schweischgeruch, and you know, his wife said, couldn't you have gotten a better name? Schweisgeruk means um, body odor. <laughs> and then he said, oh, but you don't know how much that W cost me. Because if you remove the W, then it is Schweisgeruk, which is the smell of feces. <laughs> so I'm sure probably apocryphal, but uh, gets at this very issue. <laughs> what we see as well is that uh, many, uh, or in some cases, Jewish communities seem to have kind of chosen family names at random or invented them. So we hear about how in parts of Hungary, uh, officials sort of divided up Jewish communities or families into uh, broad groups and assigned them names like Weiss and Schwartz, so white and black, maybe based on, you know, complexions of different people, mm. uh, or Gross and Klein, so uh, big and small. Uh, and so basically, this was just sort of an easy way to assign uh, family names to large groups of people if they didn't want to bother with registering individuals. Mm -hmm. But many Jews, it seemed, uh, chose to uh, adopt names that were uh, vaguely Jewish or sounded German, but in reality had Jewish roots. 
Um, and so we find a lot of examples of Jews trying to sort of circumvent the law by disguising Jewish names as German sounding names. Right. One example of this is the surname Katz. So Katz, K-A-T-Z, um, sounds a lot like the word for cat in German. Um, but for Jews, it could also be an acronymic form. And this is something interesting that I encountered in, in Jewish onomastics in particular. Um, oftentimes, surnames come, come around because of acronyms. So, for instance, there was a famous rabbi named Rashi. But that's really just an acronym of Rabbi Shlomo Yitzhak, R-A-S-H-I, the beginning letters of each name. Um, and Katz is one of these forms. It's a shortened form of Kohen Tzadik. And Tzadik is a word you mentioned earlier. It means authentic priest. And it referred to um, someone that was directly descended from an important priestly class uh, during the Second Temple period. So, And they were known as the, the Kohenim, or um, any surname that's like Kohen. Um, probably comes from this class of individuals. Um, before the destruction of the Second Temple, they were responsible for sacrificial offerings and other priestly duties. Um, and even afterwards, um, people of the Cohen line um, often had um, certain ceremonial functions. So, for instance, they would be called first to, to read the Torah and so on. So uh, this is a surname that, that existed in the Middle Ages because it was um, religiously tied and, uh, and was seen as an honor. And this name can be seen in lots of different forms. So uh, Cohen, Kogan, Khan, Kohn, um, Kahneman, uh, Kaplan, if it's through Polish, um, all of these are from the Cohen class. And then also from the abbreviation of Cohen Tzadok, we get the word Katz, which is, again, the abbreviation of the Hebrew letters. Um, there's a similar abbreviated form, uh, which is Siegel. This comes from the phrase Sagan Levia. Um, there was another type of priestly class um, or hereditary line, um, which were uh, was Levi or, or the Levites. And again, um, a group of people that would, would have this surname because it was seen as a distinction, um, they would do things like stand guard or play music during ceremonies or certain ceremonial functions. Um, and so any name that's like a Levi uh, related to it uh, comes from this. And the phrase Sagan Levia was the acronym form of that led to the surname Siegel, um, which, you know, Siegel, Siegel, Chagall, and Mark Chagall all comes from this. Um, there's a third form, which is sort of interesting, uh, from Levi, uh, and it's the surname Weil, or Ve in French. It's spelled W-E-I-L, um, and this is uh, supposedly an anagram of the name Levi. Um, so if you take the, the, the Hebrew letters in Levi and anagram them, you get Weil. Um, and not really clear why it came about. Maybe there were a lot of Levi's in a certain area. Maybe they were trying to disguise uh, their name somehow, uh, much like, like in cats. Um, but it's an example of, of this phenomenon, which is pretty cool generally. Right. And another example that we could see is, is the, the name Rubenstein, which is quite common today. Um, and uh, like my name, Ruben, for instance, which is the, the Dutch version of the Hebrew name Reuven, which means behold a son. Uh, and so uh, for Jews who were adopting family names, Reuben or variants of Reuben, like Rubenstein, were popular because Reuven was a Hebrew name uh, and was one of the tribes of Israel. But on the other hand, Reuben, R-U-B-I-N, 
uh, meant uh, ruby in German. So again, you find these names that have double meanings. They either have a, a Hebrew meaning or a Hebrew or reference to a Hebrew phrase or, or um, uh, status or something like that. But on the other hand, also meant something in German. So uh, a feature of many of these decrees of the late 18th and early 19th century that required Jews to take family names uh, was often a ban on uh, taking names associated with localities because this was normally uh, throughout much of Europe, a marker of nobility. Um, but many Jews also got around this by choosing names that describe natural features associated with their hometowns uh, or the regions around their hometowns um, instead of formal place names. So for instance, some names that sound very uh, natural or very floral, like Rosenberg, so Rose Mountain, or Birnbaum, uh, Pear Tree, uh, or Goldberg, for instance, Gold Mountain, uh, are not necessarily just nice sounding names, but are in fact thought to describe uh, the place names that people came from. So somebody named Goldberg might live near a gold mine, for instance, or a region mm -hmm. that was known for gold mining. Uh, and we have uh, interesting examples of place names that become sort of Germanicized. So an example of uh, a place name being taken as a family name by uh, Jews, but actually being sort of disguised, is Dreyfus. So there are a lot of famous Dreyfuses around, like Julia Louis Dreyfus, the actress. Uh, and in German, this sounds like Dreyfus, so it sounds like tripod or three foot. Um, but... In fact, it, this name actually doesn't have anything to do with tripods or anything related to tripods. Uh, there are later sort of folk etymologies that talk about the origin of this having to do with metallurgy or something like that. Uh, but in fact, it comes from a place name, uh, which is Trier. So Trier, the modern German town of Trier, uh, was originally founded by a Celtic tribe in the 4th century BC known in Latin as the Trevi. Uh, and when this became a part of the Roman Empire in the first century BC, a Roman colony was founded here. It was one of the first cities founded, modern cities founded in, uh, in what is today Germany. Uh, and this Roman colony was known as Augusta Trevororum. So the city of Augustus amongst the Trevi. Uh, and over time, this place became known by the locals as Trevis. And so this is the name that we find associated with Trier throughout the, the medieval period as well. And so if an individual wanted to distinguish themselves, let's say Menachem, uh, who wanted to distinguish himself from other Menachems, he could say, oh, I'm Menachem Trevis. So I'm Menachem from Trier. And because of the phonological similarity between Trevis and Dreyfus, when uh, individuals had to choose a German family name, they assimilated Trevis to Dreyfus. Uh, and what's interesting about this is that we can see two variant spellings. One is with two S's. This is the German version, D-R-E-Y-F-U-S-S. -S. And then we have one S. Uh, and the version with one S is French. Uh, and so we can see that it hasn't been assimilated the same way uh, amongst uh, French Jews as it was amongst German-speaking Jews. So the origin of this name is occurring sort of at the same time as, as these others in the late 18th century, beginning of the 19th century. Yeah, yeah. It seems to, to emerge around the same time when a lot of Ashkenazi Jews are being forced sure. to choose uh, family names. And then by the end of the 19th century, we have the Dreyfus Affair. Exactly. an important moment in sort of the history of 
European attitudes towards the Jews and Judaism. Absolutely. Yeah. And the name obviously becomes very famous because of this, this affair, which involves anti-Semitism and, mm-hmm. and ideas about, you know, how Jews are treated in French society. Uh, this was a particularly famous Alsatian name as well. And Alsace, of course, was contested between the French and the Prussians or German-speaking states. Uh, and so, yeah, this became a, a big issue um, in going into the, the 19th century. The last thing that we'll discuss is the adoption, or in some cases, readoption of Hebrew names during the Zionism movement. So in the late 19th and, and 20th centuries, um, many Jews started uh, immigrating to Israel um, and adopting Hebrew names, um, whereas before they might have had, I guess, what's known as a diaspora name or something from German or Italian or, or some other language. Um, and it was sort of a central tenet of the Zionism movement that you should adopt a Hebrew name, that your diaspora name would always put you as sort of a second-class citizen or always leave you open to discrimination. Um, and so a Hebrew name is sort of a, a fresh new start um, in this new area. Um, and so we see this done in a couple of different ways, and ways that we've already uh, covered um, that have been done in, in other points in history. Um, one was uh, calcing your name into Hebrew. So just taking a literal translation part for part. Um, for instance, one example of this is the name Goldberg that we just uh, talked about uh, means gold mountain in German. And if you take the phrase gold mountain in Hebrew, uh, that's harpaz. So uh, a Goldberg moving to Israel might have uh, changed their name to harpaz. Um, same with Steinberg. Steinberg, Stone Mountain could be har Eben. Right. Um, sometimes uh, this was done with patronymics. So, for instance, a Jew with a last name Davidson taking a Hebrew name um, in Israel uh, might be called Ben David. So the son and the Ben both being uh, patronymic forms in their respective languages. Um, sometimes it was also done phonologically. So much like Saul and Paul, as we talked about earlier, um, one famous example is the surname Grun which means green. Um, this was adopted by um, David Ben-Gurion. So Gruen became Ben-Gurion, which means son of the lion cub. It means something totally different, but still noble, uh, but mostly sounds the same. And sort of the surname was, was preserved that way instead of through meaning. Um, or for instance, uh, many of the early um, immigrants to Israel uh, were from Russia, that area. And so the name Boris sometimes came became Baruch, which means blessed and sort of sounds similar. Uh, and sometimes you could sort of do it both ways. So the name Rosen um, in Hebrew, you could change it to Vardi, which means my rose or rose. Or maybe you could just keep it as Rosen, which also happens to mean a, a count or an earl or some sort of a noble status. Now, this wasn't done always. And sometimes if you had a particularly notable or famous last name, you wouldn't want to change it. So for instance, if your last name was Einstein and you moved to Israel, um, you're probably proud of, of your connection to Albert Einstein. Um, and many people with that surname didn't change that. Or same with uh, Rothschild, as we mentioned earlier. If your name was Rothschild, you, you might not want to change that to uh, the Hebrew equivalent, which, which would sort of lose its popular uh, connection. That reminded me. So an interesting example of uh, Jews um, translating their names into Greek uh, in the Hellenistic and Roman periods is Shimon and Simon. So uh, Shimon 
in Hebrew means someone who listens and was uh, a, not an uncommon uh, biblical name. Um, and many Jews, when they ended up living in uh, Greek communities, adopted the name Simon, which independently sounds very similar to Shimon, but in Greek means snub-nosed. Mm. And so uh, you see individuals <laughs> named Simon or Simon in the Greek world. Um, and so uh, this was adopted in uh, diaspora communities in the Greek-speaking world as well. So I think that brings us up to the modern day. And I think we covered a lots of lots of different important historical moments for uh, Jewish naming practices and, and also talked about onomastics in general. Hopefully in the future, we'll be able to do some more of these episodes on, on different cultural groups. Um, as sort of a, a final thought, um, just a word of caution. Some of these are contested. Um, etymologies are often not 100% certain. Um, and also, just because certain names have this origin, it doesn't mean that every name, every example of that name has that origin. So um, you just have to be a little bit careful when, when dealing with personal names, because there are lots of different ways that, that a name can, can get its final form. As always, if you want to know more about this subject, you can visit our website at www.wordjourneyspodcast.com. Um, or if you have any information or you have a particular story about uh, any name, really, or, or a Jewish name, um, please write in and contact us because that'd be really interesting for us to investigate and to, and to look at. And again, hopefully we'll be doing a few more of these episodes in the future. Thank you again to Ruben for joining us and we'll see you next time. That was the end of our agenda, but we stuck around and talked a bit more about odds and ends. And there's a lot of good information in there. So I want to include it as a bonus. It's a bit more informal and here it is. Well, so, so what are some things that we didn't quite get to or some other names that we found? I found a good one about author E.T.A. Hoffman. Mm. So uh, a German short story writer um, wrote the Nutcracker, the original Nutcracker story that the Tchaikovsky ballet, was it a ballet? <laughs> was based on. <laughs> um, and uh, something called the Sandman, um, this very scary Sandman figure um, that kills children, etc. Um, but anyway, he supposedly was sort of a dissolute noble youth who sort of went from place to place getting sort of kicked out, promoted. <laughs> he would get a, a better post somewhere else, but um, so a famous author. And he supposedly, the legend has it, he was one of these civil clerks in Prussia during the time of the Polish partition and was responsible for you know, taking bribes and giving people good or bad names, depending on how much money he got. So that was sort of something funny that I couldn't really corroborate, but that, that I found about him. Right. Yeah. Right. I don't have too much else to offer, but, uh, one of my favorite last names I didn't get to include one of these insult last names was just schmaltz, <laughs> which is also nice. It just means greasy or mm -hmm. grease, right. uh, which is fine. But there's a lot of these, uh, these insult names or joke names, uh, that are, uh, pretty entertaining, but obviously didn't last very long. Right. Uh, and we find these two elsewhere in other parts I know of the uh, Napoleonic Empire mm -hmm. um, when they require different populations to adopt names. And I know that in the Netherlands, for instance, you have a lot of similar sort of jokey names that mm -hmm. end up popping up. Uh, so this isn't just a Jewish phenomenon, but the Jews were just a very large population that were forced to pick names all at one time. So you can imagine it would be kind of... Right. Stressful. I found a couple where it was sort of unclear whether it was a joke name or whether it was one of these sign names from the from Frankfurt. Um, one particular instance was 
the name Geldfish, which means goldfish, and sort of it's unclear whether it was a sign. You know, could have a goldfish on it. it seems yeah. like a perfectly acceptable sign animal, um, or if it was some sort of demeaning joke name. Um, right. One particular Geldfish um, came to the U.S. Um, Shmuel Geldfish changed his name to Samuel Goldwyn. Oh. And he is the G in MGM. Oh, so, interesting. Um, so, there that's an example go. of that. Um, yeah. Another one that I found that was pretty funny, but I guess unclear. It, it seems like I, I, I found it in a list of, of joke names, but it seems like it's not a joke name, is uh, Katzen Ellen Bogen, <laughs> I think is how you pronounce it. It means cat's elbow. <laughs> <laughs> But supposedly it's it's a real it's a it's a castle location, um, and um, it, the cat's part comes from the name of a of another tribe, the Chadi, sort of like the Trevi that you were talking about. Right. Um, and I think in some instances that was shortened to cats as well. So you know, if your name is Cats, you could be a cat. You could be a shortened form of a cat's <laughs> elbow, or you can be an acronym of a, a much more distinguished. Family life. A lot of cats running around right there. Yeah. yeah. Herding so. cats. <laughs> Title of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Tolkien words. And because he, I mean, a lot of that is like, like Dwarvish is supposed to be based on Hebrew. And oh, so a lot it? of the names are like, well, I mean, yeah, it's like Quenya, I think it's supposed to be Finnish. And the other one, the other what Elvish language. There's two Elvish languages. Oh. There's like high Elvish and low Elvish. Anyway. And the other one, what's the other one? Anyway. But he, yeah, he, uh, um, I mean, obviously he was like a linguist and a philologist. Right. And so he. He came up in the episode on whites. Oh, right, instance, right, right. That's yeah. from an. Barrel whites. Barrel whites right. comes yeah. from a, an old, um, old Norse word. That was right. sort of translation of that, but again, that's one of his influences. Yeah. Oh, but so different yeah. languages come from different things. Different, yeah. Yeah, different yeah. fake languages come from different real languages. Yeah, so the, yeah. the dwarves in the Lord of the Rings were supposed to be kind of like the Jews because they were a people who had been, had like lost their homeland in the mountains. They were driven out by the goblins. So they were a wandering people. And the language and the names are even supposed to be Semitic sounding, um, the dwarvish what? language. And so, yeah, he, they're basically, and, and on top of that, like, you know, physiologically, they're described in like sort of stereotypical Jewish terms as well. Wow. Uh, and so, yeah, there are a few elements in this that are like, like you have groups that are clearly supposed to be kind of like Norse. Other ones that are, you know, the hobbits are clearly supposed to be like Midlands, English folk. Right. Um, but then you have other groups that are like, you have the Haradrim who are supposed to be like Arabs. They're sort of like desert people who are just, who, again, their language is like Arabic the little snippets of it that are included. That's fascinating. So he definitely tried to make them just sound like, or he tried to mirror a lot of these ethnic groups in Middle Earth on Oh, yeah. Uh, real life. definitely do that. Yeah. I'll get you back on. It seems like you, uh, sure. you know a lot about this. <laughs> <laughs> we could do it right now. Let's just run it. Yeah, just run do it again. A couple more hours. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't there a story, speaking of the Napoleonic naming uh, adoption, was there a Dutch story? So the phenomenon of people being forced to choose family names and or being assigned sort of insulting or strange family names is not restricted to Jews in the uh, German-speaking world. But in the Netherlands, under Napoleon, 
Uh, many individuals were also forced to choose family names and poor individuals might not have had them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one example we see a, a strange last name is Nakhborn, which means born naked. <laughs> and there are sort of two explanations for the origin of this. One of them is that it's just a German or sorry, a, a Dutch adaptation of the German word Nachgeboren, which means born after, mm-hmm. uh, but like the, the posthumous, uh, like if your father dies and then you're born after that. Right, right, right. Uh, but the other possible explanation is that there's a, a Dutch expression, which is that we are all born naked, mm. which is supposed to sort of explain this typical Dutch sobriety, I guess. <laughs> the idea that everybody is, you know, don't get too excited. Everybody is kind of on the level playing field. We're all born naked. Uh, so, yeah, there, there are a lot of these interesting so names. like taking are... your family motto and just... Putting that as your last name. Exactly. You <laughs> Something know your dad says all the time. <laughs> philosophy to live by. Just, right. we're born naked. Not in charge. <laughs> Mr. Yeah. Not in charge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nachtgeboren applies together with the surname Poopius, <laughs> which literally just means a little poop, as a textbook example of so-called obligatory name-building of Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, so, basically, this was... Uh, presented in this sort of mythology as an attempt by people to rebel against Napoleon's enforcement of this name decree mm. uh, by taking on a ridiculous name, thinking that, you know, it was never going to stick, and then ultimately it became their family name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, there you go. You can throw that one in there, too. Mm.